All right, well, you may be seated. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be tonight, finishing John chapter 3 as we walk through the book of John this year. Um, Tonight, we're going to be in verses 22 through 36. And here we're going to read another account about John the Baptist. And so a few weeks ago when we were in John chapter 1, we read about John the Baptist. We looked at uh, what it makes, uh, what makes a truly great person Is this going to happen? Hopefully not. Uh, What makes a truly great person in God's eyes? And then tonight we're also going to be looking at John the Baptist. And so tonight in our passage, um, verses 22 through 30 is kind of the first half. And that's where we see this account of John. And then verses 31 through 36 is the second half. And that's where John, not the Baptist, but John the Apostle, who's writing the book of John, he provides some theological reflection um, in response to the account that's presented with John the Baptist. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into it tonight. Uh, We'll start reading in verse 22. So John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, the Bible says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they, John's disciples, came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, the one who was with you across the Jordan talking about Jesus, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. Verse 27, John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms, and the one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. And the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Here in this account, Jesus and John the Baptist are in a place called Anon. And now, um, scholars will debate over exactly where this was. We don't know exactly where it was, but it was somewhere uh, in the Judean countryside. The word Anon literally means spring, so it's indicating that there were springs and there was a lot of water there, which is why the text says that they were there to baptize. And so here you have Jesus, and he's began his public ministry now, and at this point he is currently baptizing. And then you also have John the Baptist, who is continuing his ministry as the forerunner of Jesus, and he is also baptizing. And the Bible records here that John's followers, they get into an argument with a Jewish person about ritual purification. And so they go to John. But it's interesting because when they get to John, at least with what we have recorded here, there likely was more to the conversation than what we have exactly here in Scripture. But for what was recorded with us, we don't see anything about ritual purification when they go to John and speak. But rather, we see them coming to John concerned. And the reason that they're concerned, according to them, is because Jesus' ministry is gaining momentum. 
And many people's focuses have shifted from John the Baptist and his ministry to Jesus and his ministry. And they seem to be upset because Jesus is there baptizing in the same place that John is baptizing. And according to them, which is obviously an exaggeration, they say the whole world is going after him. They're saying they're not coming to us anymore. Now everyone's just going to him. And here in verses 27 through 30, we see John the Baptist's amazing response to his disciples when they bring this concern to him. And that's what I want us to focus in on here for the next few minutes tonight. Because I believe that John's response to his followers here is a perfect example of what it means to be kingdom-minded as a believer who is serving the Lord. And tonight, just for clarification, when I use the term kingdom-minded, I'm talking about living to serve the kingdom of God as opposed to living to build up a kingdom of your own, an earthly kingdom. Having your focus set on serving Jesus as your king rather than being the king of your own life. And if we are going to serve Christ, and if we are going to make disciples, if we're going to be faithful ambassadors of the kingdom of God alongside our brothers and sisters in our local church, or alongside our brothers or sisters across the world in the universal church, it's important that we have a grasp of what it means to be kingdom-minded, truly seeking to promote our king's interests in what we do and not promote our own. And so tonight, as we walk through a couple of these verses and these statements that John the Baptist makes, I want us to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean, what does it look like to be truly kingdom-minded? So the first truth I want us to note tonight is this. Number one, being kingdom-minded means that we gratefully and humbly receive the role that God has given us, recognizing that every opportunity we have to serve is a gift of God's grace. Being kingdom-minded means that we gratefully and we humbly receive the role that God has given us in our current season, and we recognize that every opportunity that we have to serve the Lord is a gift to us of God's grace. Look back in verse 27. John, he responds to his disciples with a somewhat vague and all-encompassing statement initially. He says, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven or unless it has been given to him from God. But then he specifies what he's talking about and he follows it up by saying, you yourselves can testify that I said, listen, I am not the Messiah but I've been sent ahead of him. And that's what we saw back in John chapter one. So what is John saying here? John is saying in general, yes, everything we have is a gift of God's grace that we are to receive with thankful and humble hearts. And that is true and that is part of what he's saying here. But I would say that more specifically, what John is saying is that the role that he's been given was given to him by God. And it's his job to simply receive that role humbly and fulfill that role faithfully. He's saying, look, the job that God gave me was to point people to the Messiah. And I've told you, I am not the Messiah. And so for me to desire to be the Messiah or to try to be in a role or force myself into something other than where God has graciously put me would be for me to be covetous. It would be for me to attempt to build a name for myself, to build a kingdom for myself. See, it's easy for us, even as believers, even in the church, for us to look at opportunities that other people, our brothers and sisters, have to serve God 
and to sometimes even be jealous, wishing that the role that God has given them in the current season is the role that we have, wishing that our role currently was different. But if what this passage says is true, and if everything that we have received, including the assignments God has placed in each of our lives individually as believers, is a gift of his grace, and it's from heaven, that means that each of our current assignments, each of the ways in which God has called uh, you to be used by him in this season for his glory, it means each of those current assignments are heavenly assignments. There's no second class way of serving God. And that means that every single opportunity that God has given you to serve him right now in your life and to proclaim his name is God ordained. And the doors that God is currently opening for you to serve him and be a part of growing his kingdom, they may not be the same doors he's opened for your brother and sister in Christ right now. But that doesn't mean that it's anything less of a gift of his grace and a huge privilege. Or maybe sometimes we look around and we see the spiritual gifts that God has given to other people. And we see just how God has blessed them and how his spirit uses them. And we wish that those things could be our gifts as well. And we look at ourselves and say, man, I wish I had this gift of, um, you know, preaching and teaching or exhortation, or I wish God had gifted me in that way. But 1 Corinthians twelve eleven says that it's the Holy Spirit that distributes the gift of the spirit to each person as he wills. And they're called gifts because that's exactly what they are. Not anything we earn, not anything we deserve. They're gifts of God's grace. And so every opportunity we have to serve the Lord, it's a gift of his grace. And because of that, we must all gratefully and humbly receive the role that God has given us in our current season. Because being kingdom-minded means that we're gratefully and humbly receiving that role and we're recognizing that everything that God has given us, every opportunity to serve him, it is a gift of his grace grace. Number two tonight, what does being kingdom-minded mean? Being kingdom-minded means that we rejoice in the success of Christ's kingdom, even when that success does not directly involve us. Being kingdom-minded means that we rejoice in the success of Christ's kingdom, even when it's happening in other places, even when it's happening in other people's lives, and even when that success does not directly involve us. Look in verse 29. John continues and now he paints a picture. He says, He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. Here John is using a picture of a wedding to illustrate the situation. And it's interesting, just in the first three chapters of John, now this is the second time we've seen the picture of a wedding used to illustrate the kingdom of God. We saw that in Jesus turning the water into wine. And John is saying here that Jesus is the groom. And John, he is like the friend of the groom. He's like the best man. And the bride, who here represents the people, who represents specifically Christ's church, doesn't belong to the best man. The bride belongs to the groom. And the best man rejoices at the wedding, and he receives great joy on the day of the wedding by simply seeing the bride and groom united. I mean, how strange would it be to go to a wedding where the best man is standing up there and he's trying to make the whole thing about himself? Like, imagine you're at a wedding. And the pastor says, okay, I now declare you husband and wife. You may kiss 
your bride. And then like the best man, all of a sudden as they go in for the kiss, like the best man slides in and he tries to get some action. It's like it would be completely, absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it would be totally crazy. But that's what John is saying. He's saying it would be just as crazy for me to wish that people were flocking to me. Because in the same way that the wedding is about the bride and groom and not the bride and the best man, the whole point is that people flock to Jesus. And that's going to give me joy as someone who's kingdom-minded. That gives me joy whether I'm directly involved in that success or not. See, thinking about our own lives, how often do we only rejoice in the success of Christ's kingdom when it directly involves or happens through or seems to revolve around us? This is especially a pitfall for pastors and ministry leaders. And even as I was reading this text and I was thinking through the application of this, God was convicting me in my own life. Like how often do we say, and it's especially true for leaders and it's true for, for everyone as well in a lot of ways, but how often do we say, man, I love it when God does a work in my church or in my ministry, but then the question is, do I rejoice just as much when I see God at work in the church down the street or in a different ministry? See, some of us have lost the joy of serving in church because we don't get the recognition that we feel like we deserved. We were serving happily and faithfully when we got some sort of recognition and praise, but maybe now we're not getting it anymore, so we don't feel like serving anymore. We've lost the joy of what it means to serve the Lord. Maybe it used to be that in the past, you were the person who people always looked to and admired and went to for advice and encouragement. And you love that God used you in that way. But maybe now you're seeing that God is using someone else in that way, maybe more than he's currently using you in that way. Are you still willing to rejoice in the way that God is working through the lives of those around you, even when he's currently not working through you in that same way or in that same capacity? Because the thing is, the church of God And this applies to both local churches and to the universal church as a whole. But the church of God is a team, which means we're all on the same side and we're all fighting the same opposition. We are not each other's opposition. We are not in a competition or a race against one another. You are not in a competition to see who can be more spiritual between you and another believer. This church should not be in a competition against other churches and vice versa about who can have more people or who can see God work in cooler ways. No, we are all on the same team. And just like in a basketball game, it doesn't matter what the stat sheet looks like at the end of the game. It doesn't matter who had the most points, who had the most rebounds, who had the most assists. It doesn't matter who got what amount of playing time. Because the success of your teammate in any team sport is your success as well. In the kingdom of God, the Christian life, the church, it is a team sport. And being kingdom-minded means that we can rejoice in the success of Christ's kingdom, even when it does not directly involve us. The third observation tonight about what being kingdom-minded means is this. Being kingdom-minded means that we take all the focus off of us and we put all the focus onto Jesus. Being kingdom-minded means that we take the focus off of ourselves as much as we possibly can and we put the spotlight on Jesus as much as we possibly can. Look in verse 30 at what John says last. 
He simply says, he must increase and I must decrease. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. When I was in high school, I used to go to Bush Gardens uh, with my friends a lot. And uh, there was one time where I was there with two of my best friends, they're still my best friends today, and uh, we were in high school, so we were a lot dumber back then, um, not as mindful of what we should and should not have been doing in public. But basically, we were in line for cheetah hunt, and uh, there were uh, two ladies and a child in line in front of us. And we were sitting there bored in line, it was a super long line, and so one of my friends, he thought it would be a good idea to just like mess with this kid. And this kid, we're like high school, and this kid's like elementary age, like this is not cool looking back at all. Um, But he's like making faces at this kid, and then he eventually just starts like staring at this kid, like making the kid uncomfortable. Honestly, it was horrible. Um, And this kid out of nowhere, and rightfully so now that I look back at it, this kid, he just starts yelling, and he's like, don't look at me! don't look at me. And he starts having a meltdown. And so now his, his, uh, his guardians are there. And so now they're concerned because they're like, okay, someone's messing with my kid, which is totally understandable. So now they like get up in our faces and they start like yelling. And then my other friend, it's like the three of us, he thinks it's funny what's happening. And so he starts laughing at this kid who's yelling and causing a scene now and people are looking and he's laughing at um, the ladies who are getting in our face. And this kid is just screaming over and over. He's like, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't. And like everyone's looking. It was a horrible mess. And I had to like kind of, I'm not saying I was the good guy in the situation, but I did have to kind of like step and like, okay, like, we're sorry, like, we should not have been doing that. Um, But all that to say, don't look at me. Like, with that kind of passion, like, with that kind of conviction, like, that should be the cry of our hearts as believers. No, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Don't look at what I can do. Look at what Jesus can do through me. He must increase. I must decrease. Our job is not to put the attention on ourselves. Our job is to direct the attention and the focus and the affection and the praise of others towards Jesus Christ. See, the people on this stage, they don't sing so that you can be impressed by them. They sing so that the Word of God can dwell in people's minds and hearts so that you can be impressed with Jesus. I don't get up here and preach so that you can be impressed with me. My motivations are not perfect. But by God's grace, I don't preach up here so you can be impressed with me. And the day that that becomes my driving force, my motivation is the day that I should stop doing this. Because it should not be about the person on the platform, it should be about Jesus. Discussion group leaders, connections team members, they don't come here and serve on Tuesdays so that people can know who they are. They serve so that people will better know who Jesus is. Guys, don't spend all of your time and energy trying to attract girls to yourself and get girls to like you and think favorably about you. Just focus on living a godly life and pointing to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, and the rest will take care of itself. Girls, don't spend all of your time and energy worrying about guys and trying to get guys to notice you or to like you. Focus on pointing people to Jesus and God will do the rest. If you have a prominent social media presence, don't use it to point people to yourself. Leverage it and use it to point people to Jesus. If God has given you uh, influence in your family or with your friends or with your coworkers, 
Don't use that influence for your own ends and for your own benefit. Use that influence. Leverage it for the gospel and use it to point people to Jesus. If God has allowed you to make lots of money, which probably is not the case for most of us in the room right now, but it may be for some of us someday. Don't use your money and your resources primarily for yourself. Spend it and use it for the sake of the gospel and the growth of God's kingdom. We should not live for our name to be known. We must live for the name of Jesus to be known. We only have one life. We only have one life. And the way that we choose to live this life, whether we live it for our own name and our own kingdom and our own glory, which will someday pass away, or we live it for the kingdom of God and the glory of God, that's going to determine what eternity looks like. We only have one opportunity. Let's not waste our lives trying to build kingdoms for ourselves. They're going to fade away in the grand scheme of things. I'll close with this. Verse 36, this is what we looked at last week. Same truth. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. If you're here tonight and you're not a worshiper of God, if you're not a believer in Jesus, we heard Chris's testimony earlier tonight that God came into his life when his heart was cold and stony and rejected the Lord. He was living for his own passions. He was trying to find joy and contentment in this world. And Jesus came, and the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin and his need for a Savior. And he turned from his sin, he turned from his old way of life, and he placed his faith in Jesus. Our sin, it separates us from a holy God. The things that we do wrong separate us from a God who is full of love and mercy and righteousness. We are naturally darkness. He is naturally light. And because of that, there's a separation that is there between us and God. And to be together with God, both now and in eternity, that is what John is talking about when he mentions eternal life throughout his book. And God loved us so much as we saw last week. God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus. God himself in human flesh, feeling our pain, experiencing the weaknesses that we experience physically in this life. And he sent Jesus to die on a cross to take our sins upon himself, to take those sins down to the grave and then rise again victoriously, conquering sin and death. And he says, all who will place their faith in me, who will follow after me, will experience what it means to have true life. If you're here tonight, and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, if you are living for yourself, if you are following after the world, I would plead with you, turn to Jesus. He waits with open arms to save you. And if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ tonight, let's examine our own hearts. Ask God to reveal any wicked way in us so that we may live completely and wholly for His glory alone. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll sing. Father, we ask that you would forgive us. That you would forgive me, Lord, for the ways in which we, sometimes even without thinking about it, Lord, we live so selfishly. Our thoughts and our affections are often so concerned with, with our careers, 
with our connections and our relationships, with the trajectory of our lives, with money and physical possessions. Lord, I ask that tonight if we are living for any of those things, if we're living for our own glory, Lord, that we would just lay that down tonight at your feet. Lord, I ask that you would convict us of sin even now. Show us the areas in our lives where we are not right with you. Lord, help us to have hearts that are pure before you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we can't conjure up purity in ourselves. We can never do anything to earn your favor. But Lord, out of your love for us, you sent Jesus to be our righteousness for us. And you ask us to just simply place our faith in him and live for him alone. Lord, help us to do that well. Help us to do that faithfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name.